IO9 presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 42 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hi, I'm John Joseph Adams. I'm the editor of several anthologies, such as The Living Dead 2 and The Way of the Wizard. Uh, the Way of the Wizard were just nominated for the World Fantasy Award. Um, I'm also the editor of Lightspeed Magazine and Fantasy Magazine. And I'm David Barr-Kirtley. I'm the author of many short stories, including Power Armor, A Love Story, about the relationship between a man who never takes off his invincible power armor and the woman sent to assassinate him. The story will be appearing in March in John's anthology Armored from Bayon Books. And since this is episode 42, it's only fitting that, that we devote this episode to The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. Uh, and if you haven't read Hitchhiker's Guide, uh, basically it's about an ordinary Earth man who uh, learns that Earth is about to be destroyed, and he manages to escape by uh, hitching a ride with the aid of his best friend, who turns out to be an alien from Beetlejuice. And uh, they have all sorts of crazy adventures, and um, Arthur learns all about the strange universe that he finds himself in with the aid of the book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which uh, contains all sorts of useful knowledge. And um, some of the characters had built a supercomputer to try to answer the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. And after millennia, this computer spat out the answer, which is 42. You know, so 42 is sort of a significant number in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and hence that's why we're de devoting this show to Douglas Adams. Uh, 42 is also a significant number here at Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, if you listen to any of our early shows, you know that we started uh, we started doing our show on Tor.com, um, and we did 21 episodes for them. So the fact that this is episode 42 means that we've now done just as many episodes for io9 as we did for Tor.com. And uh, joining us today to talk about Hitchhiker's Guide is Owen Colfer, who wrote the novel And Another Thing, uh, book six in the increasingly inaccurately named Hitchhiker's Guide trilogy. He's an Irish author who's most famous for his best-selling Artemis Fowl series about a teenage criminal mastermind. All right, well, let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Owen Colfer. Welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. Nice to be here. Okay, so to start off with, just how did you first encounter Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Well, I think my path to the Hitchhiker was pretty normal. Um, I discovered it as a teenager uh, when it was thrust upon me by a friend of mine who had gotten it from his friend, his sister in England. And uh, to be honest, when I saw the book, uh, I wasn't too impressed because at that point, I was into, you know, big, huge, thick volumes and uh, as many as possible in a series. So a lot like Lord of the Rings was fantastic because you could get a whole week from those. But <laughs> I reckon this little book um, I would read in about an hour. And then I looked at the cover and I read the blurb and it seemed to be uh, kind of a ripoff on Star Wars to me. I thought this sounds like some guy is trying to make fun of Star Wars, which I wasn't happy about uh, either. <laughs> Uh, but then, of course, I read the book, and uh, I realized it was a total genius, and uh, it did indeed make fun of Star Wars and Star Trek and all the other stars, but from the from the viewpoint of someone who loved those things and who was uh, was really into the genre, and it, it, I think it took the genre to a different level and opened it up, because to, until that point, there hadn't really been much in the way of comedy sci-fi. I think there had been a few attempts, but nothing had really stuck until Hitchhiker came along, and uh, it just exploded the genre wide open. So it, it brought in a lot of people who had previously been reading Evelyn Waugh and Ag 
Agatha Christie, and suddenly they were reading uh, sci-fi, and I think a lot of them stayed in the genre as well, which was good. Have you seen the film and TV adaptations of the story? And, and if so, what do you think of those? I really like the TV. Um, we didn't get the the radio versions, which I've heard since, and, and I think that that would be my favorite incarnation of the Hitchhiker, including the books, would be the radio series. Um, I, I really like the TV because it was endearingly cheap, <laughs> which is what it was supposed to be. You know, uh, it was supposed to look uh, pretty plastic and cardboard. Uh, and because that, in a way, made fun of Star Trek as well. And it also made fun of the big budget stuff like Star Wars, when you had these little plastic spaceships that were obviously on wires. So so I, I kind of liked that. And I, I, I didn't like the movie as much, though I still enjoyed it. And part of it, ironically, was because it was too... The production value was too high. Hmm. So in a way, because it was so expensively done, it, it looked a little like uh, the generic uh, space movie. Which it, which it really wasn't supposed to. It was, it was supposed to look like a cheap knockoff. Hmm. Um, hmm. So it's funny that they did it so well that it kind of missed the mark a little bit. It was a bit wide. I mean, there were a lot of things to like about it. I mean, I think I thought the casting was was wonderful and that everybody in the movie uh, was great. I thought the script right up until about halfway was really good. Uh, and then they kind of lost it a little bit towards the end. But, yeah, but generally... As movies go, it, it was good, but I suppose because Hitchhiker is the holy grail for me and a lot of people, uh, it was it was never going to be easy to to keep us happy. Uh, so how did you get involved writing the sixth book? Well, it, it was very um, straightforward, really. It's not something I ever sought out, and I, I think if someone is seeking out something like this, they're the wrong person to do it. But um, I was literally took a call. I had sent in a, a manuscript to my agent. And usually there's great rejoicing when I send in something, or at least fake rejoicing, I don't know. But hmm. And in this instance, they, she said very simply, never mind about that, something big's come in. And, and I thought, hmm. well, it must be big to just discount the last year of my life's work. And she said, um, Hitchhiker's Guide, the state wants you to do uh, to finish the story, basically. And, and I had two thoughts. My first thought was no, uh, absolutely not. And not only should I not do it, but nobody should do it. And uh, secondly, I thought it was pretty finished. I mean, they were all killed in the end, so that's pretty finished. Sounds pretty finished to me. But <laughs> so I said no. And um, but they came back to me and said, "Listen, they want to get the book done, and they you're kind of first on the list." And the wife, uh, Douglas's wife. Jane and his daughter Polly have asked for you because they know your work and uh, it's kind of like a tribute to Douglas. We're not really looking for um, we're not really looking for a new series. We just want to wrap it up and uh, do it as a tribute and and that's very hard to to turn that down. I mean financially it made no sense to do it, uh, but but I just was such a huge fan and I and I went away and thought and they were very clever. They said think about it for a few days and of course my agent knows me and she knows that. By the end of a few days, I'll be uh, I'll have six ideas and I'll be fascinated by the the idea and the project. So I said, okay, I, I will do it, and um, and, and that's and that's how I got into it. And, but it's not one of those dis- uh, decisions where you think, okay, I've made this decision; it is now the right decision. And to this day, I still don't really know. I mean, I'm glad that I did it, and it went really well. But I don't know if I should have done it still, hmm. um, and I don't know if I would do it again if if I if I was asked. So. It's definitely not one of those black and white concrete decisions where you know you've done the right thing or the wrong thing. 
So how'd you settle on the title and another thing? Um, and if, were there any other titles that you considered before settling on that one? That, w- that was taken from uh, one of the famous quotes uh, from the book where, I forget which one, where uh, there was a distant rumbling of thunder over the hill like an old man saying, and another thing, ten minutes after he's lost the argument. And I always liked that, uh, the way Douglas had of describing, you know, humanizing thunder, for example. So, uh and I thought it was apt on many levels. It was a quote of Douglas's, uh, so it was apt. And also it was one more little addendum. It was like an appendix at the end of The Hitchhiker's Guide. There's one more little thing, so I thought that worked. Um, I had um, Ape Descended Species was another one, uh, which was another how, we desc- how the humans were described uh, in The Hitchhiker's Guide, Ape Descended Species. Um, I don't think that's exactly right, but something along those lines. And uh, I was—I also had the heart of gold. I was going to call it the heart of gold, mm. uh, but I settled then eventually. I sent in all the titles actually, um, about four or five, and everybody unanimously picked out another thing. So, so that's the one we went to. Okay, and you mentioned that in the fifth book, uh, all the characters seemingly die. Uh, how'd you go about deciding how you would rescue them? And were there any alternative scenarios that you dreamed up but didn't use? Um, I had several things. Uh, Douglas had initially written, he wrote a, a small little radio show after the fifth book, and, and in, in that he had the babelfish um, that have transporters when they sense danger. So when the earth uh, blew up, they transported anyone wearing a babelfish was transported to Milliways. And I thought that was clever, but it, it was a gag, you know, and it wouldn't work as dramatically because you couldn't sustain it because then any time there was danger they'd be transported and also why weren't they transported every other time there was danger in the mm-hmm. previous five books so Douglas you know loved just of throwing gags like that and, but I, I, that's not how I work I would have to keep it going and I, I thought it, it, it didn't work for me so what I wanted to do was lull the reader so the obvious thing I thought would be to have the Heart of Gold come back and save them that would be, I think, if you had to ask any hitchhiker reader, how do you think they'll be saved? Well, they'll be saved by the heart of gold because that's what always happens. Uh, but then I thought, okay, you lull them in with that, and they think, right, well, this is, um, that was, I'm not surprised by that. That's what was going to happen. But then you have Arthur, uh, you know, banjacks the heart of gold. So not only does the heart of gold not work, but they're in more problems. So it, it was a little bit like a double blind. I wanted people to be lulled in by the familiarity and then kind of perplexed by this new conundrum. And uh, But I, I considered several ways of, of bringing them back. I considered setting them the whole... I considered that they were all dead and they went to Asgard and the whole book was set on Asgard where they were then servants to Thor and Odin. And that did work its way in a little bit. So that was that was one way I was going to have them. Another way would be then that this whole kind of a Dallas scenario where this whole the whole thing was like a dream, or a random dream or something, but I thought that wouldn't be, that would be too much. People wouldn't accept that. So eventually I settled on uh, Wildbagger, uh, the infinitely prolonged, <laughs> arriving to insult everybody on Earth and then picking them up because they promised they could kill them, which only makes sense to a certain <laughs> certain number of people. If you haven't read uh, Hitchhiker, that will sound like abs- that's enough to have me locked up, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, you know, so for this book, you wrote a large number of guidebook entries from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I mean, what uh, what was your process for coming up with those? Uh, I think my process was that I said to myself, there's a lot of funny stuff here that I, I can't get in because it doesn't um, really drive the story. But a bit like Douglas, 
did in his hitchhike. And the movie actually did it very well. Um, where you could have a little aside then to give informa- more information that's not necessarily important to the story, but because it's a guidebook, it's, it's acceptable. So I thought to myself, if I invent any creatures or if I, if I mention any planets, I will try and give a little bit of information, information about those, exactly like a real guidebook would. And so as I was going along, I, um, I tried to come up with little interesting stories about the planets and the places and put them in. And, and in fact, um, that was kind of one of the hits among the, uh, the early readers, my, my editors and, and the various agents. And they said, you know, we love these. Can we have more of these? So I think initially there were about half as many guide notes because I thought they were slowing the story down. But they said, no, no, we love that. It was great to kind of just take a little aside and have a little joke and a titter and then go back to the story. So uh, there were a lot more of those that, uh, than there were originally planned. And are, are there any of those that you wrote that you're particularly fond of or that sort of stick in your memory? Uh, there's, there's a few um, that, I, that I really love. I think uh, the one that I love was, uh, was about the, the Cifros, Cifros uh, Magna or something, who were, they had large energy filters but small bullshit detectors. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was, I think that's one of my favorite ones. And uh, also the people who went into hibernation on a planet built for them by the Magratheans who were then ripped off by the three people supposed to be keeping watch. Uh, so Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is over 30 years old now. Uh, did anything in the universe feel dated? And uh, is there anything that you added that was inspired by recent developments? Well, I think uh, it didn't really date it to me. And, and, I, and I think the reason for that was that Douglas uh, very smartly went off-world on, in Chapter 2. So hmm. he blew up the world and any outdated technology that might exist on it. So everything he has in the book is weird and wonderful and it, it seems fine because it's not referring back to even the Hitchhiker's Guide itself um, seems like like it could be an iPad or something. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I think it's actually uh, quite current. A couple of things that I added in that I thought were particularly suited to uh, today's culture. Well, one was the he Douglas had mentioned the Sabita, which of course would turn out to be the internet. So I made a lot more use of that, and it was I was able to do it in a way that everybody understood it. It seemed like a normal thing. Um, and the second one then uh, was today's cult personality, which I think Douglas did touch on. But I was able to use that a lot more with Zephod, being that he was kind of like a male um, version of Paris Hilton in a way. He was just hmm. famous for being rich and famous. And he had really he had a candid video. And I was able to really tap into that idea. And the, even the gods were celebrities, and they were interested. In, and that's really what they wanted to do, was just be celebrities. And get more hits on their Sabitha videos. So the whole the whole modern idea of celebrity, not necessarily for uh, an artistic talent, um, I really enjoyed uh, playing with that. Okay, so Wowbagger, the infinitely prolonged, becomes a major character in this book. Uh, why did you decide to make him so prominent? Well, he was one of the characters that I really liked. And I felt that a good way to bring uh, Douglas's readers to my side, if you like, or, or to, to relax them into the book, would be to do it through characters that were familiar, but that not, had not necessarily been fleshed out. So when you read about Wildbagger before, he, he goes around uh, and he insults people in alphabetical order, and that, that's a good gag. <laughs> but that's all it was for Douglas. He threw in the gag, and 
and and was really hilarious. And I'd always liked that. But I thought this guy now, he's kind of a cipher, and I can really do what I like with him. I can give him, uh, I can give him um, a personality, and I can give him a death wish, uh, and I can flesh him out as a character. So when people came across him in chapter two, they said, "Oh, I remember this guy," and they laughed because they remember that he referred to Arthur Dent, you know, you jerk and complete our soul. And that's, you know, one of the everybody's favorite lines. So they have a laugh at that and they relax unconsciously. And then you can kind of tease them into to the book with by expanding on his character. And I did that with Wildbagger and, and also with Thor, who appeared, I think, on the Flying Party. Um, but that was it, really. So he was just uh, pretty much the stereotypical big gruff Norse god but then I brought him in and introduced him the same way but then he gets this insecurity and this depression and uh, so once again the, 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 the readers are drawn in by the reference to an old character and then hopefully they're kept in by the by the development of the character you know, The Hitchhiker series sort of presents personal immortality as something dreary, uh, is that how you feel about it yourself? Well yeah I mean I think I, I didn't realise I did but uh both Thor and especially Wildbagger. I mean, Wildbagger is totally suicidal and he's been trying to kill himself for years. And um, I, I think it, it might be a bit like that. Uh, maybe I, I would like to give maybe 500 years a try <laughs> or a thousand years, but uh, I think maybe after that it's like winning. I think if you win the lottery and you win 10 million, you can probably you can probably handle that. But if you like some of these lotteries, you know, you can win 270 million dollars. Uh, I think that's a bit too much, and it might be the same with uh, immortality. I think we could all manage 150 years, but if you have to live forever, I think that might be a little bit more challenging. Uh, so, what's been the most positive feedback you you've received from Douglas Adams fans? Well, it, they've been very good. I, I think the most positive feedback has been the swing away from negative. Uh, <laughs> when it was announced that I was going to do it, uh, the the negative stuff that came on the internet was just massive, and it was. A lot of it was quite personal, and uh, I, I think the worst thing was that there was some guy on the site claimed he had read the book. Hmm. It was terrible. And at this point, I hadn't even started writing the book. Uh, so, and this, and he even quoted bits from the book. <laughs> and, uh, and I was picked up by a lot of journalists who were then saying, oh, Hitchhiker fans are not happy with the book because it's this, that, and the other. And uh, that was quite hurtful. I, I felt I wasn't being given a fair chance at even writing the book. Uh, but I was very lucky that when, by the time the book actually came out, or just before it came out, there was actually a, a backlash to the negative publicity, which is weird. I'm I'm used to living in a world where I write my book about leprechauns, comes out, some people buy it, and get one or two reviews, and then the following year I do the same again. But in this case, it was I, I had never experienced anything like this, where there was articles in in major national newspapers around the world on a on a daily basis and uh and they were all quite negative and um but just beforehand there was a little bit of a backlash against that and uh and that swung nicely into uh the release of the book and 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 on the weekend when the book came out uh, there was two big things that were going to kind of cement whether the, the book was perceived as being a success or a failure and uh, this, there was one, there's an art show over in the UK, which is very big, and the, the American director, Kevin Smith, was going on it, and they were going to talk about The Hitchhiker. And uh, I was, I couldn't even watch it, I was very nervous, and uh, <laughs> apparently Kevin Smith wears a dressing gown all the time. 
But I didn't realize this, and someone just shouted to me, he's wearing a dressing gown. I thought, oh, Jesus. <laughs> he's, a, he's a real hitchhiker fan, and he's going to kill me. Uh, but he didn't. He really liked it, and he was really, really positive. And uh, and when he and I think he holds a lot of sway with the geeks of the world. And I think when he said it, you know, he really liked it, and he thought it was very good. Uh, uh, that took a lot of weight off my shoulders. Hmm. And then there was the, the Guardian on Sunday in the UK, uh, and that's the big one, the big book review. And he gave a whole page to it, and he loved it. So, so that was kind of cemented then. But I think the biggest, the biggest compliment I had was from a journalist in, called Mark Lawson in the UK, and he said that if Douglas Adams' family had brought this to a publisher and said they found it in the in the attic, that hmm. he would have he would have totally believed that. And I and I and he's kind of a very respected journalist over here, so that was a great thing for me to hear. And, and I was able to, I, I just took those then and I said, right, that's pretty good. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to listen to anybody else now. I'm, I'm deciding to accept their point of view. But I think critically it did pretty well. I mean, obviously there's people who are not going to like it and obviously people are going to absolutely hate it, even the idea of it. And you have to kind of accept that going in. But I didn't have any idea how strongly people would feel about it. Um, so I'm glad, I'm really glad because I, I met a couple of writers, and I said, you know, they said to me, you were very brave. And I said, what? So, you know, if this had gone wrong, it could have just killed your career stone dead. And uh, so I, I, I count myself lucky to have have survived, really. Um, aside, aside from the guy who claimed to have read the book before it came out, uh, uh, were there any other any other angry comments that were just, like, sort of hilariously over the top? Well, there was, I mean, there was people who, who thought I should be killed, and, you know, there people... I, I, there was letters coming on my website and I had to go, I went off Facebook and it was just people, how dare you and blah, blah, you know, and, and I could see the point, you see, yeah. But the the scariest thing for me was I went to the hitchhiker, I went to a convention in England and it, there was a hitchhiker uh, section to it and so they booked me to speak to them and I told my, you know, I told the publisher, I don't know if this is a good idea, I think they're just there to crucify me and uh but i went and uh but they were fantastically nice and they all said have you met the super fan yet and hmm. i thought well I, I said i thought you guys were super fans they said oh no they're the super fan who's who you know who's who believes basically that douglas adams is you know is is is, is bible and, and you're you're basically messing with the bible and i never really met one one like that and, uh, but i mean there was all sorts of people said all sorts of nasty things but I've realized now that it's very easy to say something nasty on the internet, especially if it's just on a chat room where you're not really accountable and you don't really want to build up a following or be respected. You're just there to uh, uh, to blast out sentences. And we all say horrible things about people, but we, we would never write it down and, hmm. and we would never post it to them. But people on the internet now, it seems to be a lot of people don't really acknowledge any responsibility for what they say. Uh, and I realized it in a funny way. It was just before I went off Facebook, um, there was I was invited to join a site to or join a page to stop me writing Hitchhiker's Guide. And it was a random invitation, so I thought, well, this is really going out all over the place. So I went on and uh, I joined it for you know just for a laugh, and I started to write horrible things about myself. And it was really liberating, you know. I thought, wow, this is really easy, and it doesn't mean anything, and it's just a laugh. And I felt much better after that. I just kind of, I stopped worrying about people worrying about me and just got on with writing the book. 
Uh, so, I mean, it's been reported that Douglas Adams struggled with depression, and that's something I think about a lot, that he, you know, wrote these such funny books while while dealing with that. And I've actually, I've heard a lot of writers say that they've observed that humor writers tend to be morose, uh, whereas horror yeah. writers tend to be jolly. Uh, I mean, what do you yeah. think about that connection between sort of being sad and writing comedy? I think it's probably true, and I, and I think a lot of stand-up comedians are like that as well, and comic actors. Uh, I mean, I'm certainly not, I mean, I think when I'm out publicly with, uh, with friends or at a dinner party or something, that I can be quite amusing if, if I'm in the mood. But generally, I'm not a laugh-a-minute guy. When I'm at home, I, I do tend to be a little bit quiet and possibly a little morose, and uh, I have to remind myself that I have kids and uh, and, and, to, and not just be depressed. So I'll try to appreciate what I have. But, uh, so I'm not really a jolly person. And I, and I know a lot of other writers who are like that, you know, who aren't that jolly, really. Uh, but then we can switch it on. If, I mean, if I have to do a show, um, I can be funny for 45 minutes uh, and then and go off then and just be my miserable old self for the rest of the day. <laughs> but I don't think I'm, I have, I would be depressed, really. Um, I think more anxious. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm a warrior, but I, I wouldn't think I suffer from depression or anything like that. But I do know that there is a uh, corollary between uh, comedy performers in any media and uh, and depression. And I think especially comedians, stand-up comedians, a lot of those guys are on the edge. I think of uh, that they walk the line between comedy and depression. That's you know so funny if you can stay on it, and then after the show they tip over into depression. So uh, will there be any more Hitchhiker's Guidebooks? Well, not for me. Uh, I, I think if you do one, you, you can you can say that it's a tribute. But then if you do more than one, you're kind of trying to take over the series, and which I think is madness. And um, and also, I, I mean, I don't see my book as I know I know it's been sold as the sixth part of the Hitchhiker's Guide, but really I, I consider it as an add-on. You know, like a DVD add-on or something that you can you can do if you wish. Um, but I mean, really, there's never going to be another part of the Hitchhiker's Guide. There's five books, and then this is a little add-on. Or if you want to play the video game, you can do that. Or if you want to watch the movie, you can do that. They're just different uh, representations of Douglas's uh, work. So, what it was really successful in doing, I think, was to bring Douglas a little bit more back into the light. I mean, he he never was in the darkness, but I think. He had dimmed a bit his star, so I did when when this book was announced, all the books, all his books went back into um, the the charts, uh, and all the audiobooks went into the charts. They did a whole reprint of all the books, so even just for that, it was worth doing it to get people reading Douglas again. And I think maybe in four or five years, it'd be great if you got somebody else to do one, uh, a little hitchhiker story, and, and it could become a thing every few years just to shine a light on the hitchhiker again but nothing will ever supplant uh the or even you know the original work it'll just maybe augment it a little bit now who might you like to see uh write another book uh set in the series i mean other than like neil gaiman and terry pratchett who you mentioned before i think they should go for somebody unexpected you know that someone that that no is not in the fantasy genre and is not wouldn't you wouldn't really think in a million years i mean i'd love to see someone like uh Isabel Allende maybe do one. She'd probably do an amazing book. And and she'd probably love to do something like that. It would be a real change of pace for her. So I think they should look for someone just in a, that would be the last person that uh, that you would pick. 
and I think you might be surprised. You'd be surprised how many people are hitchhiker fans. When you ask hmm. writers, there's a huge number of closet hitchhiker fans out there, and I bet you could find an amazing one to do a seventh book. I think Cormac McCarthy, that would be a good choice. Yeah, can you imagine? <laughs> Everybody would die again. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, he, but seriously, no, someone like that who might be able to have, might have these comedy chops that nobody knows about, and <laughs> they, could, uh, they could surprise everybody. Yeah, so uh, why do you think uh, Hitchhiker's Guide has remained popular for so long? Well, it's, it's one of those things. I mean, if you could pinpoint exactly what it was, we'd all try and duplicate it. I think there's several things. I mean, first thing, it parodied a genre, genre that really needed to be parodied at the time that was getting, you know, it was so popular and the, it, it was very overblown and was very earnest. And I think if some if if there is a a genre like that, it, it needs to be have fun poked at it so that it doesn't take itself too seriously. Uh, and I think uh, Douglas did that amazingly well. And also, he had these fantastic uh, characters uh, that nobody had ever attempted anything like these before. I mean, a paranoid android, for example, absolutely fantastic. But I think the main thing is that just. They were so funny. I think if Douglas had chosen to write, to write in any genre, he he would have been a success because he's just such an absolutely slyly hilarious man, and uh, I think that would could have worked for him in, in any genre. Great. And so finally, just uh, what else have you been working on? Well, I'm working on a load of things. Uh, I'm working on finally my first crime novel plug is coming out in uh, September in the States. So um, I'm coming over to do a tour there um, next month, which I'm, I'm looking forward to. I'm writing a musical at the moment. Well, I'm just tweaking it, and we're hoping to bring that to New York uh, next year as well. So that's pretty good. And I'm currently on the first draft of the last Artemis Fowl book. So that's my... I'm pretty busy at the moment, but I enjoy I enjoy being busy, and I, I like having a little bit of pressure on me. It just I think I work better when there's a little bit at stake. All right, well, Owen Colfer, thanks so much for joining us on Geese Guide to the Galaxy. My pleasure, guys. I look forward to hearing the show. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Owen Colfer for joining us on the show. All right, and so now we're going to talk some more about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And for the first time ever... Here on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, we have a special guest geek joining us. Uh, Christy Yant is a science fiction and fantasy writer. She's the assistant editor for Lightspeed Magazine, occasional narrator for Starship Sofa, and co-blogger at inkpunks.com. Her fiction can be found in the magazine Crossed Genres and the anthologies The Way of the Wizard and The Year's Best Science Fiction and Fantasy 2011 Edition. She's also, I'm proud to say, soon to be Mrs. John Joseph Adams. <laughs> and uh, has been with us actually since the beginning here at uh, Geek's Guide to the Galaxy behind the scenes. She was our original pod turn and produced the show notes for our first 21 episodes. So uh, she's now stepping out into the limelight and uh, joining us uh, for this episode because she's a big Douglas Adams fan and uh, you know, wants to uh, join, in on the, join in on the discussion. Yeah, so uh, the geek, so Geek's Guide is very important uh, to us in many ways, uh, obviously. Uh, not only is it a, a source of, of great financial income um, <laughs> to help support my family, but also it, it actually got us together. It's true. It's true. We owe it all to you, Dave. <laughs> all right, but yeah, so I mean, I think just the first thing I wanted to talk about is I know both John and Christy have both said that uh, Hitchhiker's Guide was just really important to you guys when you were adolescents, helping you get through sort of rough 
you know, getting through sort of a rough period in your life. And I was just wondering if uh, the two of you wanted to kind of talk about that. Yeah. When I was, when I was eight, my, uh, my dad died. And so, uh, you know, that was, that was a rough period obviously, but it, it was, uh, you know, my family lived in New Jersey and then, um, and then we moved, uh, we moved down to Florida shortly after, uh, cause my mom got remarried and, uh, and my stepdad at the time, who was no longer my stepdad, but, um, you know, he was just a, he was a real jerk. And, uh, you know, um, so like the, when I was 10, basically like the whole, the whole year I was 10, I was like, I was almost like confined to my room, like the whole time, just like, you know, I was grounded for one thing or another. Like I couldn't, I couldn't get, I couldn't get off being grounded for longer than like a day before I get grounded again for something, you know, and not, not that I was a bad kid, just that, I don't know, there were so many rules, it was impossible for a child to follow them or whatever. And so, um, because I was just confined to my room, like the whole time, um, you know, I was doing a lot of reading that year. And, uh, and my sister had always been my uh, source of reading material. And, and she, you know, she just gave me the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy one day. Um, and, you know, she had given me other stuff like I talked about before on the show where she gave me the Xanth books and that kind of thing and the Robert Aspirin myth books. And um, but the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I remember vividly reading, you know, that year when I was, uh, you know, confined in my room like that. Um, and uh, specifically, I actually the, the most vivid memory I have is reading Restaurant at the End of the Universe for some reason. I mean, I can actually picture I can actually picture holding the book, you know, um, while I'm sitting there in my bed, uh, you know, reading them. But. But yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know. It's just, you know, like the, the thing with science fiction and fantasy is that like, you know, one of the things that it does is it allows you to escape, right? And one of the one of the reasons people sort of criticize it as being not literature or whatever, because they say it's escapist or whatever. But but regardless, I mean, you know, uh, I, I mean, that's one of the great things about it and um, that it does let you sort of escape and, and you know, forget the situation that you're in if, if you're in a bad situation. And um, yeah, similar experience here. It was, you know, there was there was a step parent and uh, always miserable. And, and, um, I, I actually didn't discover Hitchhiker's Guide until, uh, much later than you did. I was in, uh, high school already and I was actually, um, I'd been sent to boarding school for a year and a half and, and, uh, restaurant was the first one that I was introduced to too. And I was actually introduced to it on an LP of hmm. one of my friends there, Carson Weed, wherever you are. Thank you. Um, she had, a, an actual, you know, an album and we'd play that thing over and over and over. And I have never laughed so hard in my life. And smiles were not easy to come by at that time, you know, and, and, uh, obviously I had to get, you know, all the books that were out up to that point. And, and, uh, I, I became a, a really hardcore fan very quickly. And, um, I've only been, you know, a true fan of a couple of things, Star Wars and, Hitchhiker's Guide, and Hitchhiker's Guide doesn't have the uh, the organized fandom, I guess, that that some other things do. But um, for a while, I was actually carrying a towel with me hmm. for about a year and a half. I had a blue duffel bag that I painted uh, with acrylics with the the uh, planet, you know, uh, mm-hmm. sticking its tongue out at us and all of that. And I had my towel in there at all times, and I always had a copy. Um, Life, the Universe, and Everything turned out to be my favorite, and so that's the one that I would carry. And I, I mean, I I had so many copies of it because I would just wear them out. And, you know, they, they were just dark times. And I won't get into why they were dark times, but they were. And and I could open any one of those books to any page at any time and smile. And that was the only thing in my life that could do that. And uh, I will get emotional if I continue. I mean, seriously, <laughs> they, they, were, they were such a source of escapism, yes, but just... Uh, humor in what seemed like a really humorless world, like the the absurdity uh, of the universe at large. He made it really clear, and um, 
And it, I think I think it really changed my outlook. I mean, in a really kind of fundamental way from um, everything sucks to God, everything's really kind of funny. If you hmm. think about it, you know, God, he increased my vocabulary, too, because I became a fan of Douglas Adams, you know, not just Hitchhiker's Guide. But if you go on to like Dirk, Dirk Gently, um, I had to read those books with a dictionary next to me and and. And I would sit there and I, you know, any word that I didn't know, I'd write down and I'd go look it up because I wanted to understand the humor. And I knew that mm-hmm. I was missing something if I didn't understand exactly what he was saying, because he chose his words so carefully. Um, and I've seen so many people try to, you know, ape his style and they always fail. And I, I actually picked up um, the, uh, and another thing the other day for the first time and opened it just with fear and trepidation and read a chapter and couldn't stop laughing and couldn't stop reading things out loud to the family again. And I went, Oh, he nailed it. He did it. This is exactly the experience I had reading it, you know, reading the first ones back in high school. And I would always listen to, to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And they would, they would always say, you know, that Ford Prefect's name, you know, he had picked the name Ford Prefect because it was nicely inconspicuous. And I was always sure there was a joke there, but I just could never <laughs> get what it was. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is, it, like, is it something to do with perfect? I don't get it. Yeah, um, but it turns out that a, a Ford Prefect is a ca- a car. Uh, yeah, that, was, that one was just lost on a <laughs> you know in yeah, the U- was... in the UK, and that actually I mean if if you I don't I forget where they talk about this, but that Ford actually thought that cars were the dominant life form on the planet. Uh, you know, so yep. he, he picked a, a name of a common one when he first arrived. But um, the the LP that you listened to was that a reading of the book or was that a drama radio drama sort of thing? It, it must have been the radio drama uh, because there were. Great sound effects. Um, I, I don't, I wish I had it myself, but I don't, you know, I, I could probably look it up on the internet and find out exactly what that was, but. Cause I mean, you know, that was certainly how I was introduced to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is cause my parents had heard it on the radio. And so they bought it on cassette tapes, you know, and it was the whole um, BBC radio drama. And so, I mean, I've listened, I, I think I said on the show before, but we used to listen to that every car trip we would take. So, I mean, I've listened to that thing. I mean, probably 50, 75 times. I don't even know. And I have read the books, but I mean, for me, Hitchhiker's Guide is, you know, in my mind, uh, predominantly a, a radio drama. And it does have, I mean, it has just some of the most amazing sound design, just sound effects, uh, just the the sort of clanking sound that Marvin makes as he walks around. It just, uh, there's just nothing quite like a radio drama um, hmm. for, for doing that kind of stuff. That's um, where it first, that's where it first came from, right? It first aired uh, before the books came out. Right, right. Yeah. So, so you know, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and the Restaurants at the End of the Universe are adapted from the material, from those, you know, six cassettes uh, that I had. And then, you know, the other stuff was, uh, you know, written first. The other, the later books were written first as books, and some of them have been adapted later on. But the, uh, those first two books were the ones that originated as radio dramas. Um, you know, like Chrissy mentioned how she was carrying her towel around. Uh, the towel is important in the Hitchhiker's Guide universe because... Uh, it's like one of the things that uh, hitchhikers of the galaxy are always supposed to carry around. Uh, it's not, I don't know if they ever actually explain why. It's which the most is... massively useful <laughs> item an interstellar hitchhiker can possibly have. There you go. I, I knew she'd be able to quote it exactly. <laughs> um, do, do you know about the origin of the towel story? No, tell us. Okay, so, so Douglas Adams, he was on vacation with some friends in Greece, and they would always be leaving every morning, and he couldn't find his towel. You know, and he'd be like running around the flat looking for his towel. And this happened enough times that finally he was just like, you know, if I really had my life together, if I was really an organized together person, I would always know where my towel was. Yeah. And so he just incorporated that into the into the story. I like it. 
how he how he came up with the there's this story about how he came up with the the name for Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is that he was traveling around Europe with a book called The Hitchhiker's Guide to Europe, and uh, I guess he was just drunk and <laughs> you know, like lay down in a field somewhere and was staring up at the stars, and the thought just popped into his head: The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and he just knew instantly that that was a a great title. There's actually there's this documentary about Douglas Adams. Uh, I can't think what it's. I, I can't think what it's called, but uh, they they told this story too about how when he you know he uh, he graduated from college and he'd kind of been sort of a liberal arts major and didn't really know what to do for a career. Uh, and he was a fairly he was a big guy. I mean he was a tall guy, and so he actually was working for a while as a bodyguard and uh, for these sort of I think Saudi businessmen or something like that. And so they would be staying at a hotel, and he would just be sitting out by the elevators, just making sure nobody came up, approached the rooms. And so he would be sitting there, and, and he would notice, you know, late at night, and he would just notice that the elevators would go up and down and up and down, and the doors would open and close. And it just sort of made him think about how uh, how the elevators felt about this, about how they were just constantly going up and down for no apparent reason. And uh, so that shows up in the in the, in the books, too. Hmm. Yeah, actually, you know, um, I was, uh, I hadn't, uh, The Salmon of Doubt is a book that they uh, published posthumously. Uh, you know, he, Douglas Adams died quite young. Uh, he was only in his 40s, right? But uh, th this was published posthumously. It, it was going to be, uh, there's a section of it that is called The Salmon of Doubt, which is actually, a it was going to be a continuation of the Hitchhiker series, right? And, uh, but then the rest of the book is filled with essays and whatnot. Um, and so I was, I haven't read it, but I mean, I was actually poking around through it. So I read a few, few of the little essays in there. Um, and so I read this one where he's telling a story. He's telling, he's telling the story about, uh, being at the train station and he buys, uh, he buys a package of biscuits, which is like cookies, right? I mean, they call mm -hmm. them biscuits. Right. So, um, in the UK, they call them biscuits, but, uh, so he, he buys this pa package of biscuits and a newspaper and he sits down and he, and he, uh, and there's a guy sitting at the table next to him and, and, uh, he's also reading the paper. Right. And then, so, so Douglas Adams, um, opens up it, or, or no, he's sitting there looking at it. He's doing the crossword. And then the guy who's sitting next to him, like reaches over and he grabs his package of biscuits and he just opens it and starts eating them. And then, so he's like being a proper British gentleman. He doesn't know what to do. He just, so he doesn't say anything. And instead he just, he goes and he eats one of the cookies himself and pretends he'll just ignore that that happened. Um, but then the guy, he, he eats another cookie and so Douglas Adams eats another one. And so they basically, they just go through the whole package, each of them taking a cookie after a cookie. And then so the guy, you know, at some point they finish the package of cookies. The guy's train comes and so he gets up and leaves. And then so, uh, and then so a while later, Douglas Adams' train gets there. And, and so he picks up his newspaper to go and he finds his package of cookies was under his paper <laughs> the whole time. And so he notes that uh, how how it was. It's kind of hilarious that there's actually a, another person who has the same exact story as him. Only he doesn't have a punchline. <laughs> he just has, you know, so some some crazy person just started eating my cookies, and it doesn't make any sense. Um, but it's funny because um, so that that's an essay that he wrote. But then he actually put that same scene actually right in um, "So Long and Thanks for All the Fish." So that scene is basically exactly in there, just as it happened in real life. I guess, yeah, I, I wanted to just talk about sort of what makes Hitchhiker's Guide so special. And I think one thing for me is it just seems that it just captures, Christy was talking about this a little bit, but it, it just sort of captures the way reality is in a way that I'm not sure anything else I've read does. Just the sort of the massive scale of the universe and just the absurdity of it and just the the it's the the universe's complete unwillingness to 
give us this any sort of you know meaning or or answer or uh, mm. anything like that, and uh, just sort of uh, the the absurdity of of human institutions and pretensions and and just, and, and and science too, just sort of the absurdity of science. I've always really liked uh, the the explanation for uh, the the infinite uh, the infinite improbability drive. Um, I actually, I actually, I have that here. I want to, I want to read it. Um, so, but, so the idea basically is that, uh, you know, uh, Douglas Adams had written the story to the point where, um, Arthur Dent and Ford Prefect have been tossed out into space and he's like, you know, how am I going to get them out of this one? There's, there's no, no way that they can possibly get, get get out of this. Anything that I dream up will be ridiculously improbable. And he's like, well, how about if I make a drive that functions by, you know, infinitely improbable events and then it would make perfect sense that it, that it would show up and, and save them but so so this is the explanation for for how this drive uh, was invented it says uh the principle of generating small amounts of finite improbability by hooking the logic circuits of a <laughs> bambleweenie 57 sub mason brain up to an atomic vector plotter suspended in a strong brownian motion producer say a nice hot cup of tea were of course well understood, and such generators were often used to break the ice at parties by making all the molecules in the hostess's undergarments leap simultaneously one foot to the left, in accordance with the theory of indeterminacy. There were many respectable physicists who said they wouldn't stand for that sort of thing, partly because it was a debasement of science, but mostly because they didn't get invited to those sorts of parties. Another thing they couldn't stand was the perpetual failure they encountered in their attempts to create a machine that was capable of generating the vast, infinite improbability field needed to flip a spaceship between the furthest stars, and in the end they grumpily announced that such a machine was virtually impossible. Then one morning a student, who had been left to sweep up the lab after a particularly unsuccessful party, found himself reasoning this way. If such a machine is a virtual impossibility, he thought, then logically it must be a finite improbability. So all I have to do in order to make one is to work out just how improbable it is, then feed that figure into the finite improbability generator, give it a fresh cup of really hot tea, and turn it on. And, and I think what makes this so funny to me, you know, my, my dad's a scientist, and I think what makes this so funny to me is that this sounds like so much of modern science, particularly since Einstein, sounds so ridiculous that this sounds pretty much like an actual scientific explanation you know so much of relativity and except for the hot, except tea. For the hot tea i guess but so much of your relativity and quantum mechanics and string theory it's just so at odds with our intuitive understanding of how things ought to be that that this is just taking it just one step for this 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 thing that douglas adams has here it's just taking it one step further in, into the absurdity and just you know just 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 so much of hitchhiker's guide just just captures so perfectly just how absurd it is to be just sort of a reasonable human being and how the universe just doesn't uh, uh, conform to your expectations or your uh, feelings about how things ought to, ought to be. It's, it's so, I mean, it's sad obviously for a lot of reasons that Douglas died when he did, but I mean, um, uh, especially though, when you consider the advances in, in like this mobile computer technology that we've had, like, I mean, like I have an iPad sitting right here. Like this is basically this is almost like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You know, it's like this mobile computer in the palm of my hand. If I look at Wikipedia on my iPad, that is so close to a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I mean, admittedly, only covering things that, yeah. that we know of on Earth, but um, we actually have them now. Well, and, and Hitchhiker's Guide really prefigured Wikipedia in a very specific way because it's described in the series that the way that the Hitchhiker's Guide was put together was that, you know, anyone could just sort of wander into the office and type whatever they felt <laughs> like and wander out again. Yeah. 
Well, and, and, and he tried to actually launch uh, a Wikipedia before there was a Wikipedia, and that was the H2G2 network, um, where, it, and it was essentially the same idea. You had a, a user identity, and you could go on, and anything that you knew about, you could go uh, write about. And I actually ended up updating the entry on Santa Barbara in, like, 1998 or something. And uh, it was colorful and big and, you know, wasn't as, uh, yeah, it wasn't as lightweight as Wikipedia. And, of course, we didn't have, you know, wiki exactly markup and all of that at the time. But, um, you know, he was he was on top of that. And it's, it's actually very sad. The BBC just retired it maybe, mm. I want to say, like a month ago or something. I mean, it's been up for more than uh, more than 10 years. And, and that's that's a long time in Internet mm-hmm. years. But. Yeah, and he was just so excited about the internet. He knew what it could do, mm-hmm. and he tried to make it happen. And uh, we just—it wasn't quite mature enough yet. But yeah, don't you wish that you could just go back in time and hand him an iPad? Yeah, and he's yeah. such a huge Apple geek too. Yeah, know? that's oh, right. That's God, right. Yeah, he loved his Apple products. And... Well, there was this great image somebody posted recently on Twitter that I saw, where it was, you know, a Kindle, and it had opened the page from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, describing what the guide looked like. Oh. And it's, you know, almost uh-huh. a word for word description of what a Kindle looks like. So amazing. Yeah. Um, there's this, uh, this YouTube video I wanted to mention that that's great. It's, uh, it's Richard Dawkins, um, giving a, you know, he's talking about biology and talking about the, uh, the fallacy that things in the world were created with us in mind and created for our benefit. And he says, you know, there's a section from one of my favorite series, you know, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that, just uh, explains this perfectly. So I was just wondering, I have it here, I was just wondering, does anyone in the audience maybe want to volunteer to read this? And, you know, people in the audience raise their hands, and, and he calls on one person in the audience, and, and the guy comes up, and he says, so, so what's your name? And the guy says, oh, I'm Douglas. And he says, oh, Douglas what? He's like, oh, Douglas Adams. He's like, oh, Douglas Adams, what a, what a coincidence, you know. Huh. And, and so Douglas Adams then goes on to read this, this scene where uh, they're at the restaurants at the end of the universe, and there are the animals that want to be eaten. And it's, it's just really, really funny. And and so definitely check out that video. But, you know, it's it's kind of funny because there is this sort of, like, connection between Douglas Adams and Richard Dawkins, that they were good friends in real life. And Douglas Adams actually became an atheist after reading one of Richard Dawkins' books. And, uh, you know, um, Douglas Adams introduced Richard Dawkins to the woman who would become his wife, Lala Ward, who was one of the Doctor Who, uh, you know, uh, actresses. And so it's just it's just weird to think that if, you know, if Richard Dawkins hadn't written those books on biology that, you know, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy wouldn't exist in anything like its, uh, you know, its current form. It's, it's very hard to imagine, you know, Douglas Adams writing anything like those books uh, if he had not uh, developed that interest in science and uh, skepticism and stuff like that. That was, that was the blind watchmaker specifically that he cited as being the book that changed his life. Um, and actually, I mean, if you're interested in Douglas Adams' biography, you know, Neil Gaiman wrote a book called Don't Panic. Uh, which is, uh, you know, sort of a, a book about Douglas Adams and, and about how he wrote those books. Don't don't panic are the words that appear on the cover of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Because the Don't Panic is is like a companion guide. Um, uh, it kind of it talks about you know a lot of the trivia behind Hitchhiker's Guide and you know some of the the merchandising that happened. Which boy, I wish I could get one of those original towels. <laughs> um, eBay, here I come. Um, you know, some of the anecdotes about, um, how the books came to be and the radio show came to be. And, and he talks a little bit about, um, the, the original, you know, attempts at making movies out of them and all of that. But I actually have on my shelf out there a different biography. And I wonder what that was called. 
Okay, Wish You Were Here, the official biography of Douglas Adams by Nick Webb. Um, there's actually a, also a, a book of essays called The Anthology at the End of, at the, end of the Universe, um, and it's, uh, you know, it's just a series of essays by science fiction and fantasy writers and, um, you know, t- you know, people who just love the Hitchhiker's Guide series. And, um, uh, so, you know, if you're a fan and you want to sort of read people, um, you know, talking about different aspects of the series or, you know, that kind of thing, uh, that might be something to check out as well. Uh, there was another, there was an article I want to mention that people should check out. Uh, this is actually written by one of my friends in New York, Julia Galef. She's, uh, one of the co-hosts of the, uh, Rationally Speaking podcast. But I guess some some local school had an event where they invited a bunch of people to come in and and, and talk about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And so she wrote this essay called, Is There an Answer? Searching for the Meaning of Life in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And one point that she makes in here that I thought was really interesting is that, you know, religious people will often say that, well, if you don't believe in an afterlife, doesn't that just render all of life meaningless? The fact that it's finite, that it's going to end someday. And... um, that's a sort of sort of superficially coherent uh, position. Um, but then also she, she makes the point that, oh, well, in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there's this character, Wowbagger, who has infinite life, and he just finds that, as Owen was talking about in the interview, just oppressively, relentlessly dreary. And that's also perfectly coherent, right? The idea that if you lived forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, life would have no meaning. And so she just points out that if you sort of uh, you know, have both of these ideas in your head that the fact that life is finite renders it meaningless and the fact that if it were infinite, it would be meaningless. You know, obviously there's something wrong there that uh, it must be that, that meaning has to come from somewhere other than whether or not life is uh, finite or infinite. Well said. Oh, I did find the passage, the puddle yeah. passage. So um, this is from uh, the Salmon of Doubt. And uh, I feel like you should introduce the uh, the concept of the radical atheist before we get into this. Uh, okay, well, I mean, Doug, you mean just that Douglas Adams, if, if asked what religion he was, he would say, I'm a radical atheist, just to make mm-hmm. it clear that, you know, he really meant it. He really meant it, yeah. <laughs> um, but he, uh, he wrote some essays on that subject that uh, appear in The Salmon of Doubt and, you know, it, it, like you were saying, he and Richard Dawkins were great friends, and Dawkins' work really influenced him. And, um, and something that, that Douglas wrote that really influenced me, um, I found this a really powerful kind of explanation of, of how, how it is that we seem to think that we are the center of the universe and everything has meaning to us and it's all about us. And he says, this is rather as if you imagine a puddle waking up one morning and thinking, this is an interesting world I find myself in. An interesting hole I find myself in fits me rather neatly, doesn't it? In fact, it fits me staggeringly well. must have been made to have me in it. This is such a powerful idea that as the sun rises in the sky and the air heats up and as gradually the puddle gets smaller and smaller, it's still frantically hanging on to the notion that everything's going to be all right because this world was meant to have him in it, was built to have him in it. So the moment he disappears catches him rather by surprise. That I thought that was such a wonderful explanation. It's like, yes, of course, uh, everything fits us so well. Clearly, human beings have thrived. So the hole must have been made for the puddle rather than the puddle fits the hole. Well, yeah, and, and I mean, speaking of, of Douglas Adams, you know, speaking of, uh, you know, the sun warming the puddle out of existence and stuff, I mean, you know, Douglas Adams was very concerned about animals going extinct and, and trying to pervert, you know, preserve them. Um, he did a, I think a documentary called Last Chance to See, where he sort of traveled around the world looking for the most endangered species and kind of bringing attention to them. 
Um, I also someone told me he also like climbed Mount Kilimanjaro dressed in a rhinoceros, purple rhinoceros costume or something. Yes, uh, <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> uh, to bring attention to that to that cause, but like one of the, it was funny. Uh, I heard him talking about one of these endangered species. It's this bird, and uh, it's no longer. <laughs> Uh, it can no longer, it's sort of evolved in such a way that it can no longer fly, but it hasn't, it still thinks it can fly. And the cockapoo? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So it'll just like run up a tree and run out of, run, run along a branch and jump off and sort of flap its arms and fall <laughs> yeah. to the ground and just do this over and over again. If you haven't read the book Last Chance to See, which was the result of that, um, that adventure between, uh, Douglas Adams and Mark Car- Carwardine. Um, they did the, the radio show and then, you know, Douglas wrote a book as well. And he, uh, it, it is hilarious. It is hilarious and poignant. It'll make you both laugh and cry. Um, and you know, it's one more time he, you know, changed my view of the world with this book. And, uh, this was actually what Douglas said he was most proud of. This is what he was speaking about when he was doing speaking engagements toward the end of his life. He didn't want to talk about Hitchhiker's Guide anymore. He didn't want to talk about Dirk Gently it was last chance to see. This was what was most important and what he was most proud of. And uh, if you had, unfortunately, it's a terribly neglected book because it's not fiction. It's not, uh, you know, it's not shelved over there in science fiction and fantasy. You have to kind of go find it. But it is, yeah, I mean, his description of that kakapo being terrified and running up a tree and thinking it can fly. <laughs> that's a great, I mean, that's a great example of, of, um, how he illustrates the plights of these animals so that you're so engaged and it's just so funny. And at the same time, it's so deadly serious. And it was to him and it was what he devoted most of his time to, to at the end there. So, it's, I guess it's getting to the point where we should talk about the movie, uh, you know, the recent feature film and, and what we thought of it. We, we have been uh, invited to, uh, to, you know, on our, on, the, on our Facebook page, Chase Laudner says, Hope some effort went into mocking the movie. I know it's been a while, but we must never forget. Never forget. So. <laughs> Duke's up, <laughs> sir. <laughs> so we've, we've been, uh, you know, invited to criticize the movie. I don't know. What would you guys think of it? I'm going to go down in flames on my first appearance <laughs> on what? the show. I love the movie. I do. I love it. It is not the book. It is not the radio show. It is not the text game. It is the movie. And uh, it is as absurd as any of the other pieces of, of work. It is um, It's what I like to put on when I like have the flu and I can't move. It's, it's what I put on the, on, the, on the DVD player and just kind of run on a loop because it, it doesn't require much of me. But I thought the casting was brilliant. If ever there was an Arthur, that was Arthur. You know, um, I, I loved the expansion of the Vogons. I thought that was fantastic, too. Um, it, was it a perfect movie? No, it wasn't. But, you know, I went into it biased because, again, I knew that I knew that uh, Douglas's widow had signed off on it. And, you know, what? if it was good enough for her, then it was going to be good enough for me. And, and uh, I'm not a purist, and neither was Douglas. So um, that was my opinion. And I understand that I am in the minority. I, I get that. I get that, and I'll bet Dave hated it. <laughs> that is my guess. I thought the casting was 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 great. I, I'm with you there. Uh, I thought the comic timing was way off, um, particularly compared to the radio, the radio drama. And maybe it's just because I know that so well, but I I just didn't think the delivery of the lines was was anywhere near as good. Um, but it was pretty close, you know, in terms of the the material for the first half of the movie or something. And I just did not care for the whole, like, rescue trillion from the Vogons, you know, the point-of-view gun kind of stuff at all. 
the thing that really drove me crazy was at the very end where the, you know, they're like, well, where should we go now? And they're like, oh, let's go to the restaurant at the end of the universe. And they're like, oh, wait, no, the restaurant's at the other end of the universe. And they turn around. You know, the restaurant at the end of the universe is at the conclusion of the universe. It's not at the edge of the, you know, it's not the boundary of the universe. So, <laughs> oh, that, you know. <laughs> I can understand. It, I think it was, I think it was more of a, uh, you know, we keep using the word absurd in, in describing the literature, but the movie was more goofy, I think, would be a better word to describe it. And I was okay with goofy. Mm-hmm. John? Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I I would like to say that I liked it, but I don't remember it that well. And I mean, I I remember disliking it, but I'm 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 sort of I want to say I want to say on the fence here because uh, my future wife here apparently loves it so much. I okay. I, I wish I wish we had actually I wish we had watched it together before the show to to just from more familiarize myself with it because uh, honestly I don't really remember it that well in my mind, and I mean that's probably not a great sign. But um, I remember not liking it much per se but uh but yeah i mean um yeah that that is not okay that is not okay all right so yeah i mean so we're uh you know we're getting to the point where we got to start wrapping things up i wanted to talk just a little bit about sort of what the legacy of, of hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy has been uh, i mean two things i wanted to mention specifically you know i mentioned you know my dad's a scientist and he has this fancy scientific calculator and he was saying that uh if you uh you know it has all these um you know fundamental constants programmed into it and if you look through the list of fundamental constants one of them is uh you know the answer to the ultimate question of life the universe and everything and it's 42 no <laughs> oh, that's great <laughs> that is fantastic um and then of course there's also towel day which is uh, an annual celebration in honor of douglas adams it's may 25th and you're encouraged to carry a towel with you uh, wherever you go you know into work whatever uh to uh, express your uh, admiration for for douglas adams you know, I, I mean, um, we, uh, Christy and I were talking about this the other day a little bit, um, but or sort of talking about about like you know other humorous science fiction and how like you know like Terry Pratchett is sort of a sort of someone like Douglas Adams. But I mean, at least we brought up that point. But I, I having just reread them, I was like, you know, I'm not sure that's true. I mean, it's like they're both humorous, certainly, but like honestly, like I don't know that I've ever read books like the books written by Douglas Adams. I mean, just because they're so absurd mm-hmm. and like I like we were saying before, so plotless, basically. I mean, just like, you know, one one just a series of randomly un you know, ran, just a series of random events happening to people, like it which is not really a plot per se, you know. Right. And, uh, and like, you know, when Owen Culfer uh, took on the task of writing, uh, you know, the sixth book, I mean, I can't imagine how difficult that would have been. I mean, to, to, to write in that style. I mean, I, I was very skeptical that people could write in that style. And I, I don't know that if I was the editor on the book, I would have suggested anyone try to write in that style. Um, right, because so many people try and they fail. They yeah. fail miserably. You can tell when someone is trying to write like Douglas. You can yeah. tell. And it, it always fails till now. And again, I, mm-hmm. I have to say I was so impressed when I started reading that book. The safe bet would have been to uh, hire someone to write something in the milieu, but then tell them to just write their own book. Right. And, you know, obviously it would have to be humorous, but then I would have expected a more traditional sort of plot because that's what everyone else knows how to write. So in in that sense, like, I don't know that um, it's hard to say what, what, what the series effects, the series effect on science fiction has been. I mean, because like, you can't say that, that it's really um, inspired other stuff like that because there is nothing like it, but 
Uh, I mean, I think it certainly made humorous science mm-hmm. fiction sort of more, more, more of a plausible venture. And I mean, we did a whole episode on uh, humorous science fiction, but um, I don't know how much the Hitchhiker's Guide is being discovered now by new readers, and and I would love to know. I hope that it is. I hope that uh, it's holding up, as I said before. And, you know, and these were not the only uh, books that he wrote, either. He had his Dirk Gently series, which is extremely cohesive plot-wise and very complicated and just as smart, if not more so, um, and also hilarious. So I recommend checking those out if no one has. I think Douglas Adams might have a legacy that's going to go far beyond that, and, and I hope that it will be, um, you know, in the continuation of Last Chance to See. I hope that it will be in uh you know his ecology and conservation work i hope that uh i hope that other people who are having a hard time open these things and laugh i i don't know um and you know it's kind of funny uh with the big with the explosion of uh ya publishing these mm-hmm. days uh, you know young adult publishing uh, uh i i'd like you know i mean there's several adult novels that they're repackaging as young adult books like ender's game which is another one sure. um like that and i mean it's not humorous but it's, a, it's one that a lot of kids read and they find right. they identify with and, and whatnot but um i'd like to see the hitchhikers books uh repackaged uh, for yeah. the young adult markets just so that we can help guarantee that those that the younger yeah. readers do find it because you know like you know we all all three of us read it when we we were young and um i mean i think that's a shelf at that time right right and i mean i think that's when the majority of people who are actually big fans of it read it when they were younger and um it's sort of something great to discover at that age and and you know probably uh, one of the one of his one of douglas's most lasting legacies has got to be just the 42 (laughs) i mean Mm -hmm. it doesn't make any sense but god everybody knows that that's true like everybody knows 42 like and i mean like in, in a way that you wouldn't expect something from a book and series yeah. and movie like this that is not really like a like a household name or anything like that it, it's like almost everybody knows it mm-hmm. um and so my sister just got it tattooed yeah. on her arm I like it and it's an awesome tattoo it's and she's not even the geeky one well, she's well, a rock star yeah that's true i mean they're both geeky but she's, yeah. she's not the the uh the writer of the bunch she is the musician but yeah it's um yeah it is it's it's almost universal it seems like um at least in in semi-geeky circles you know i went with some friends when i was in la i went with some friends to pick up a piece of furniture that they had bought and so we went to this family's house and uh they had a teenage daughter and uh you know it turned out that she was interested in science fiction and so i asked her you know well what are some of your favorite books and and she says oh well my favorite book is it's called the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy i don't know if you've ever heard of it you know oh Oh, i've heard of it and that, that sort of you know that warmed my heart to see you know someone that age you know that that was their favorite book there are two books that my uh, teenage daughter and I have kind of bonded over, and, and um, one of them was the the Garth Nix books, and uh, because that one spoke to our our darkness. <laughs> but um, the other one is the Hitchhiker's Guide. You know, it's it's one of very few things that we have both read and both loved, and so yeah. So I guess it did. Maybe maybe it's making its way to the. To the YA markets through the parents, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Or to the YA readers through the parents, I don't know. Well, that's always a tricky thing. It's 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 always better to have it where the kids yes. can discover it on their own, yes. and they're not, you know, it's not handed to you by mom or dad yeah. because you know that automatically makes it less cool. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> See, and uh, I guess we were going to mention that Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was just named number the number two best fantasy and science fiction book ever by listeners of NPR. And so since Lord of the Rings was number one, that makes it the number one best science fiction book ever, as voted by listeners of NPR. Nice. Yeah, that kind of goes to what we were saying earlier about the, you know, this, the how pervasive it is, mm-hmm. uh, kind of in a way that is surprising given that it actually is 
shelved in science fiction. Like it, it, you would expect something that uh, is science fiction, but is typically shel- shelved as literature or whatever, like 1984 or, or something like that would be more pervasive. But um, hey, man, it's got galaxy right in the title. So just like this is only one planet. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. Um, you know, thanks, everyone, for listening. If you'd uh, like to help us out, you should go to uh, our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on any of the ads for our sponsor, audible.com, and that'll take you to a page where you can sign up for a uh, free trial subscription and get a free audiobook. And, of course, a free audiobook you might want to consider would be one of the Hitchhiker's Guides to the Galaxy books by Douglas Adams or also uh, uh, Owen Colfer's uh, sixth book in the series, and another thing. Uh, those are all available on audible.com. And another way you can help us out is if you go to iTunes, you can um, look for the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy podcast, and you can leave a review or a rating there. You know, only if you like us. If you don't like the show, don't leave a review or rating. But um, you could do that, and you could tell a friend, or you can, uh, you know, post about us elsewhere, and just generally help us spread the word. So long, and thanks for all the fish. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of io9. For this episode's show notes, to subscribe to this podcast, or for more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirkley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.